Blog Talk Radio. Pediatric Speech Language Pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm so glad you've joined me today. I hope the weather's better where you are, or at least when you're listening right now, because it is a cold, wet, rainy November day, but that is okay, because to appreciate the sunny days, we need the rainy days too, don't we? All right, so let's move on with today's show. We are going to be discussing more expressive language strategies. And this is show number 351, and we're actually continuing show number 350, which is part of a bigger series of podcasts that I started, oh gosh, a month or so ago, with called I Need a Plan. And it's really reviewing the hierarchy of treatment strategies and areas of focus that I use for working with toddlers with any kind of speech language delay and so we're not going to walk through that whole hierarchy because if you've been listening to that series you are pretty sick of me probably (laughs) saying that we have to work on social skills and then receptive language and within receptive language we're going to work on cognition and then now we're talking about expressive language and last time we talked about how the imitation hierarchy so that if you have a child who really has typically developing social skills or you've worked them up to the point where things are moving along and then you have a child with age-appropriate or near-age-appropriate receptive language skills or, again, those are improving even if they're not exactly where we want to see them, then we're ready to work on expressive language. But there are some children who kind of fall in that gap who either won't be able to, because of their developmental status of where they're currently functioning, they aren't going to be ready for that imitation hierarchy that we talked about in last week's show. So we're going to talk about what to do when that those kinds of things aren't working. Remember we started with talking about we teach imitation not by words. We can't get to words yet, but we start way back at actions. And sometimes we have kids that for cognitive reasons, they're still really struggling with their uh, cognitive skills and improving and moving along cognitive reasons they're not really able to imitate actions with toys so that's why their play skills don't look that great they may have some atypical interests they may have some things that again are red flags with that sometimes we talked about that a lot of times parents will say my child doesn't like toys when really that's not it it's that he doesn't understand what to do with toys or how to play so there are some kids who kind of fall in that gap that uh, they've got some uh, atypical behaviors or some idiosyncrasies or little quirks. Quirks, are that's a better word, for what's going on with them. Or it's, it might be that their attention, they just aren't there yet developmentally. So what do you do with those kids? So we're going to talk about those strategies. And then we're going to, so and, and so this is, I've called this the sandwich show. I've referred to it this way in my mind for a couple of weeks since it was two weeks ago that I did the last podcast. It's a sandwich show because we're taking the strategies we talked about two weeks ago, and those are in the middle. So I already talked about the before strategies, and then we had last time's show. And then after we finish the before strategies, we're going to talk about the after strategies. What comes after kids are really already imitating single words and phrases? How do you move them into more spontaneous language use? And so that's a lot of ground to cover in one show. But we're going to try to do it because... Lots of this information, again, I hope will be a review for you, and it's not the first time you've heard it. And so if you are listening and you want some more in-depth information about 
whatever strategy we're discussing, I'll be sure to give you another place to go so that you can get that information and, again, kind of fill in any gaps that you might have. But before we get going with all this, I forgot the most important thing that I was supposed to talk about today. Last week, last Friday on November 2nd, 2018, I announced the launch of my latest therapy manual. It's called Functional Phonology. It's treating speech intelligibility in toddlers. Uh, and I am so excited about this book, be and I've waited a long time for it. My goodness, I started writing this in 2012, and it just never felt right. I would pick it up and start to work on it and then not finish it and put it down, and then I would pick it back up and work on it for a few weeks or a few months or just work on it every now and then. But now, finally, six years later, it's time to finish it. It's finished. So that releases on November 15th. If you've not pre-ordered your copy, please go ahead and do that because it's on sale right now for $40 and it's going up to $48 uh, when the pre-sale period is over and we start shipping books on November 15th. So if you want to get that, be sure to do that. All right, so let's move on to today's show. We are talking about expressive language strategies. And again, we're going to start with before, the before strategies. What do you work on if you've tried to get that imitation hierarchy that we talked about last time? What do you do when that doesn't seem to be working? And, you know, we did talk about signs in uh, last time show, show number 350. We talked about signing and how that really is a second step in teaching a child to imitate. Look, teaching him some signs and gestures because gestures always precede words in language development. And so we were talking about how important signing can be and how it's it's a good step, an in-between step, especially for toddlers who are frustrated, who who have communicative intent. They understand that they want to tell you something and they want to you to hear them, even if they're not ready to use words yet, they want you to understand them. And so we talked about how signs can bridge that gap. And I think I probably talked about this on the last show, but let me just say it uh, for those of you for a little refresher or if you didn't process it or haven't listened to that show yet. A lot of times we'll start with sign language with children and they just don't catch on and we're wondering what's happened. Well, any time a child isn't able to do what we want him to do or what our goal is, we always know what. It's too stinking hard. There is no other explanation. <laughs> He's not ready. And so anytime that we work with a child with, again, any strategy, it doesn't matter if we're talking about introducing signs or if we're talking about introducing words or if we're talking about like a functional phonology, the focus of that is speech intelligibility and articulation or phonological skills or getting all the right sounds in the right places. Any, no matter what we're working on with a child, if we have worked on that, again, for a period of a couple weeks, I usually use that four to six week period. If I'm trying the same thing for four to six weeks and I'm getting nowhere, I automatically say, stop. And I try to make myself come to a screeching halt if I have not done that already. And I think this is just too hard for this kid. And so you always know then, what do you have to do? You have to make it easier. And I always say we have to back up. So if you've been working with a child, if you're a therapist or your own child, if you're a parent of a late-talking toddler and you've been working on signs for four to six weeks and he's – and there are probably some of you who are listening who have been working on science for four to six months and still aren't getting any results. And, hey, I'm not going off about that. That happens to all of us where we just don't know 
what else we should do. And so we stick with something a long time thinking that perseverance and sheer determination will get us over the finish line. And a lot of times that happens. But if you've been working, again, with a, a, a one, two, or three-year-old on the same things and you have not altered your approach, made any modifications, and it's been four to six weeks, you need to always take a step back and think, I've got to try something different. I've got to try something new. And don't forge ahead. Don't think this is too easy. If something's easy for a kid, they do it. So it always means the opposite. It's too hard. So you want to back up. So if you have a kid who's not signing, what do you work on? Well, go back and work on little easy gestures. And remember, kids aren't ready to sign developmentally until they're already understanding that they can use some gestures communicatively. So what do you look at? You look at things like clapping. Are they clapping along with you in imitation? Or are they clapping themselves spontaneously? And and our little friends do this so much in therapy. And if you're a therapist, I know you're going to recognize this example. We clap and cheer and throw a party or however you want to refer to it for lots of things that our little friends do, and that is fantastic. I will never, ever discourage the use of praise (laughs) as a reward for a child doing something that's hard. But a lot of times our kids get so hooked on that that they start to clap for themselves. And I love it when that happens because they're using that gesture spontaneously and they're telling me, hey, I know what this means. I remember what this means. And I'm communicating this very clear message to you that somebody needs to praise me (laughs) for what I've just done. And so clapping, waving bye-bye, purposefully reaching for an object and then using their eye gaze looking at you like, hey, do you see me trying to get this? Can you can you give a kid a hand here? Those kinds of things, shaking their little heads for yes or most often for no and refusal of something. So any any of those purposeful gestures let you know, hey, now I understand that I can use my body to communicate a message to you. I'm ready to communicate nonverbally. And for some kids who have significant motor issues, either motor planning, they can't quite get their little hands to to do what their brain is telling them to do, so that's a little motor planning problem. Or if there's an execution problem, there's a muscle tone issue, they have some weakness or some uh, decreased strength in their arms and hands, and they may not be able to sign because of that. But those kids still will use facial expressions and eye gaze, and and really, I just love the ways that they figure out how to compensate for what their even their little hands and their little mouths aren't ready to do yet. So look for those things, and if you if you've been working on signs and you're just stumped with what else should I do, back up to work on those easy earlier gestures because again, those are prerequisites for using sign language, and until the child is doing that his signs are not going to be meaningful or purposeful or spontaneous because he doesn't have the cognitive piece of that yet. He doesn't understand or the symbolic piece that I can wave my hand and that's the same as me saying bye or telling you goodbye. Or I can point to something and that's the same as me saying I want that. And so you've got to get that little piece in there. And that's why some children will sort of get stuck on one motor movement, a sign like more, 
and we don't see any other signs, and we just get so baffled. Why can't he learn something else? That's because he really doesn't understand it yet. He's he's understands, hey, every time I do this, well, that's not quite true. He understands every time I do this, I'm going to put my fingers together, and voila, somebody gives me something. But he hasn't really learned how to differentiate that yet. And and that's sometimes it, that it's a problem with the kid. But sometimes when a child is stuck on signs, it's because we haven't taught enough. And usually it's that we didn't go at at the beginning we let him hang on to that sign without introducing more signs or or we didn't figure out hey this is not as purposeful and as meaningful to him as it needs to be and so we let a kid get stuck there and that's why I always get so confused when therapists are going off about kids overusing the sign for more or overusing the sign for please that's not the kid's fault that's the therapist's fault or the parent's fault because we need to be teaching more. We need to move faster. And see, and some and some therapists will kind of fall into, well, that means we never teach more and we never teach please. And that's kind of ridiculous to me too. And, again, if you feel that way, please don't think that I'm being derogatory to you. I'm not. Let me just change your mind about it. The reason that I think that's a little bit, unwarranted is because more and please those signs and those words are so functional and kids can practice those signs all day long and another reason they're so functional and again this is along with the word or the sign everybody understands it so it's universal so if a kid goes to daycare and really now most places a kid can sign more and if you're a daycare worker or a daycare teacher you know what that means because that's been around for a long time so super super functional same thing with the word, but again, it's such a good way to get to phrases to pair more plus a noun or a verb, whatever you want to, whatever the second word is there, or please on the other side of that to let please be your anchor word for that that phrase. And so, I, for that reason alone, I think it's justified to teach more or please because you're going to use it later. It's a great initial first step for request. And I, again, I love those words and I love those signs and nobody will ever be able to talk me out of that. But you can't leave a kid there. You've got to move them along and get them using them, teach them additional signs. And again, you've really opened the door for them to be able to sequence those signs and sequence those words and combine them to make phrases. So be sure when you develop your own philosophical stance about that, that you aren't double-minded and don't, don't that you're really, really, really uh, stopping your own progress and that you're not foresighted enough to think, man, I'm going to be able to use these signs later. Now, I'm not going to leave a kid there. We're going to add a lot more signs besides more and please, but we're going to go ahead and teach that as an initial step in the door to get signing and even talking going because later we can use it. We're going to do the same thing when we get ready to go to phrases. We're going to use those the signs or words more or some plus or plus the word plus please. We're going to use that for phrases. So we'll save that a little bit later. We'll talk about that again in just a few minutes when we get to phrases. All right, so other things that we do when a child is not developmentally ready to move up that imitation hierarchy to talk yet. So signing is one of the augmentative alternative systems that we use. Now, if you are an SLP, you know that we always call that AAC, and that's the abbreviation for that, Augmentative Alternative Communication. And if you're a parent, that might be a new term for you. But if you have a child who... Talking is just not a realistic developmental goal right now. 
or let's say your child has a diagnosis that really sets the stage that talking is your long-term goal, that you need to do some other things first. And so sometimes parents get real defeated about that, and they feel like they're giving up on talking. And I know we talked about this on the last show too, but let me just say here, I've seen so many real-life instances where we get a kid signing or we do something else like pictures or a speech-generating device that we're about to talk about uh, in just a few minutes. And guess what? It takes the pressure off everybody. The child learns, hey, I've got to do something to get something. That's that communicative intent piece. He starts to recognize and realize the power of letting you know something specifically by using a specific sign or using a specific picture or using his app or whatever his uh, speech generating device happens to be and he really again owns that communicative piece and then guess what happens lots of times words just come on in because they've learned that power of communicating and then speech and talking becomes easier than it was whatever if there's a developmental uh, gain that they've achieved they just gotten there cognitively, receptive language-wise, and again, that communicative intent piece, their motor systems may have matured, where PT's moving along, working on that gross motor system, and OT's coming in and really getting that fine motor system revved up, and then that's when speech gets better. And you, as a speech-language pathologist or developmental interventionist or special instructor, all our teacher people friends, you've done a good job of setting the stage for that, and parents, too, you've just worked so hard at home to get those devices going and get those systems going, and then the child is ready to talk. So lots of times these things that seem to parents to be kind of communication ends or stops, they're really, really not. They're in great in-between steps. So if you're a parent and you've been really reluctant to try another system that your therapist has been talking with you about, Go ahead and do it. And you're not giving up on speech. You're not giving up on spoken language. You just know, hey, I've got to provide that little in-between step here to help my child really reach whatever developmental level that he's not been able to reach yet. So that's how I always explain it to parents. I still have had parents reluctant to do it, not so much with signs because that's pretty easy, but a lot of parents have been reluctant to do pictures. And pictures kind of, for some parents, are, for lack of a better word, a real pain (laughs) because they have to keep up with them. And here's the kicker. To use a picture system, you have to practice. You absolutely cannot just take a bunch of pictures of things in your home and tack them up on the wall everywhere or put them in front of your child and just sit and wait and expect them to use the picture. That almost never, ever, ever works. And so sometimes when parents and when therapists aren't having success with pictures, I'll say, what are you doing? And that's exactly what they've done because they don't know a different way. And so let's talk about picture systems and what we can do to help those systems become really, really functional and really usable 
for children and for parents or other family members. The very best way that I know to teach a child to use a picture system is with PECS. And it, that stands for, it's, I'm, say, I'm pronouncing it as P-E-C-S, the Picture Exchange Communication System. And so if you are a therapist and do not own the PECS manual and have not read, at least read the PECS information, I mean, I would just say to you, get off this podcast right now, pull over your car if you're driving, get off the treadmill, whatever you're doing, stop right now and order a PECS manual because you really are not equipped as a therapist to teach a picture system until you have read that very solid evidence-based protocol for teaching toddlers how to use pictures to communicate. And that's how strongly I want to say it. Now, I don't have any affiliation with PECS at all. So if you think I'm trying to sell their products that I get a kickback or whatever, uh uh-uh. That is not what's going on here. It's because I really believe in that system, and I have seen such good results. And I'll tell you, I've followed a lot of people, and if you have – if you know anything about my career, you know what, gosh, I've been doing this podcast for 10 years now. And if you've been listening since 2008, you know, I need to meet you and give you a big hug because I appreciate that. But if you've followed my work at all, you'll know that I have pretty much made a career now out of following other speech-language pathologists or giving that second opinion or that third opinion or that 15th opinion to families. And so I see a lot of kids who have not been as successful in therapy as their families have wanted. And usually that is related to a diagnosis, meaning that they have something more significant going on. So I have my more than my fair share of super hard kids. And I'll tell you what happens. We just talked about it with signs, and we'll talk about it now with pictures. It's always because we have violated the principles of introducing whatever strategy that we're trying to introduce, and it's too darn hard. Uh, without making sure that a child is really developmentally ready. And so one of the things that PECS does is it lays out that whole process for you. And so they, they tell you right there in the manual how to implement the system. And so it never starts with take 25 pictures of things that you think a child might want, put them in front of him, and go. No, it starts with one picture with him seeing one picture of something that he really, really wants. And actually it starts before that. It starts with picking out motivators or, again, what a child loves because he's got to have a reason to communicate. So you pick out your motivators and then you have your picture ready for whatever was the most motivating thing. And and that therapists probably understand what I mean by pick out your motivators, but let's talk about that for parents. That just really means that you're determining, again, what a kid likes and will work for. And so for some kids, it's food. For some kids, it's a cool toy. And for a lot of kids, it's a motor activity or a movement game. And so it usually falls into one of those three categories. And you, how Peck suggests that you pick out the motivators is you set a lot of things out in front of a kid and you see what he reaches for and you let him play with it for a minute and then you take that away and you put out two or three more things and you see what he reaches for. And so by that process of elimination with letting him really choose, then you can really objectively determine what he likes and what he doesn't like. Now as a parent, you already know that. You know, okay, he loves his trains. 
He loves this book. He loves this music toy. He likes goldfish, and he likes M&Ms, and he loves it when we pick him up and throw him in the air. And so can you see just by that short description, I mean, man, you already have five or six different motivators or things that you know that you can teach him to use to communicate. And so you get your pictures that represent those things, and now with the use of our, all of our phones that will take those kinds of pictures and you can just print them, you know, at home or if you don't have access to a printer at home at Walmart or, you know, even online, you can uh, upload your picture and then get those back even in the mail. So there's really no excuse not to use the picture system uh, for most families or and certainly for therapists. And so you do that, and then you have your picture, and you tra- you train that. You you introduce that one picture at a time so that he sees, let's just take something really easy like goldfish. You've got the goldfish there in your hand. And you always, the other thing that with pecs, it's so clear about is you need two adults to teach a child, one child to use pictures because you need the person who's the giver and the person who's the receiver. Now, the giver, what I mean by that is the assistant with the kid. You're going to use hand-over-hand assistance to help a child pick up the picture and place it in the hand of the person, and I guess that would sort of be the giver. I think that's confusing terminology, so just kind of erase that I said that. But the person who is the other communicative partner, the helper person is going to help the child put the picture in the other adult's hand, and then the other adult will give the child what he's wanted, and in this case, it's goldfish. And you do that a lot, and actually the PECS research says that children have to have at least 30 opportunities for trading a day for that system to become functional. So if a parent's just trying to work on it a couple of times at breakfast, a couple of times at lunch, one time during snack to get that going later that afternoon, and then maybe a couple times for play, you know, what is that, maybe six or seven times? That is not enough. So no wonder that system isn't working. So you've got to have those repeated episodes of practice so that repetition is the key there to help a child really really understand how to use that picture system and then the other thing that PECS does is it's really a nonverbal system so you're taking the language piece out so of course we can hardly work with or do anything with a kid without talking and as a speech language pathologist you know that's fantastic because we have to talk to children for them to understand words they have to hear words but at the same time there's some children who have so much difficulty with language that it almost muddies the water. And so PECS really is a nonverbal system because you're not giving verbal prompts. You're not saying, pick up the picture, give me the picture, hand me the picture, you have to give me the picture. Can you see how that would overwhelm a child? I mean, that makes me anxious and get revved up just talking like that. So you can see how a child might become overloaded or overstimulated. And one thing that PECS really stresses at the beginning of using picture systems is that you don't need to do a lot of verbal prompting. You need to do it non-verbally so that your hand is out if you're the adult giving the objects the child wants. And if you're the helper, you're not sitting there saying, okay, hand her the picture. You You know, you're not doing any of that you're helping them with hand-over-hand physical assistance or you're pointing to the picture. So that's their little visual cue that, hey, I need to get this picture and put it in the other adult's hand. So super, super system. PECS teaches children how to make choices. That's so that pictures are really meaningful then, so that they're really discriminating. Because a lot of times with pictures, if you only take pictures of what a child likes, then he's happy with whatever picture he gives you and whatever he gets. And so PECS is just 
brilliant in teaching a child to really look at the pictures and decide and make a decision. Do I want to give her this picture or do I want to give her that picture? And we always do it with a non-preferred item. And so, again, think about this. If you've even sort of have used pictures, and especially if you've screwed it up and done the method of let's just take all the pictures and see what a child likes, see what will work. Let's post pictures on the refrigerator and let him go in there and point to a picture, and then I'll open the fridge and get what he wants. Guys, that is so ineffective for most of the kids that we see. So please don't do that. Get yourself a copy of the PECS manual today and get that system implemented. All right, let's move on and talk about speech-generating devices. Now, again, there's so many possibilities out there with apps for your tablet, but I'm kind of old-fashioned in that I like to start with lower-tech devices like Big Mac switches or Little Step or Go Talker, those devices that are only made for speech. And see, the problem with using tablets and things for a lot of our toddlers is we we let them watch YouTube videos on it. We play other little games. And so they don't always understand this is how I get what I want. This is my communication device. So sometimes we have to back up and use a, a different system knowing that we can go to a more complicated app on a tablet or an iPad so that a child can use that eventually. But at the beginning, when kids are struggling to really discriminate and differentiate between pictures on an app, then you know you need to back up and use one of these other systems first. So same premise, same guidelines as the pictures. We're not going to let a kid just have lots and lots of choices at the beginning. We're going to really start with one request on a Big Mac or a Little Mac or a GoTalk or whatever you're using, and then you're going to bump them up as they get uh, more skilled at differentiating between those pictures. You've got to, again, pick great motivators because you have to give a child a reason to request. I still use the whole two adult premise, and sometimes the therapist will say to me, I can't use two adults because... Um, it's just me and therapy, and then I just want to kind of shake them and say, unless you have done everything within your power to get a parent there. Now, I understand now in a school system setting that's going to be a lot harder, but usually you're still working in a classroom. So hopefully you can find another adult there to help you because it will be much, much, much more effective and much more efficient for you to have another adult there instead of one person trying to do all the work. So think about using the same principles for pecs anytime you're introducing any kind of device. So whether that's the Big Mac or a GoTalk or anything, and I'm saying those things because I've used those devices for years. I know there are other things out there. Or even if you're using an app with a kid, having that second person there, one person to help the child and then you or a lot of times I'll be the helper for the child and let mom be the person who's the giver of goods, who's the person who's giving the child what they want, because that's what happens in real life. And listen, I've even used older siblings, you know, that are eight or nine, as either one, to help the child and be the assistant for the child as they're learning a picture system or a, a device system or, um, you know, just just any any other assistance you can get right there, and you can train the child to do that. Or sometimes moms will still be the helper for the child and let the older sibling be the giver and get the uh, 
give the child what they want with that. Because, again, children need practice with different people so that the system doesn't become dependent with, I only use this with my speech pathologist while I'm in speech, or I only use this with my mom. I never use this picture system or this device with my dad or with my grandmother or anybody else. And so you've really got to be careful about that and train that into your systems too. So if you need more information about using AAC in general, my favorite website about that is practicalaac.org. And they spell practical with two A's too. So practical, P-R-A-A-C, and then T-I-C-A-L-A-A-C.org. There's an excellent blog, and they're also on Facebook. So check them out. They have so much good information there. Uh, so many other good people with just do a Google search for AAC techniques or for tips for using AAC, and I'm sure you'll find out some other stuff. And let me give you another resource, too, of mine. Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, really walks you through step-by-step. Good things to do with picture systems and devices, not so good things to do. And again, how do I know that? Because I have made every mistake in the book, and I want you to benefit from all of my um, mishaps so that you can learn how to use these things more effectively with children. The big thing is repetition. You, you've, you've got to really practice with the child and give them an opportunity to learn the system. And I think the next big thing is choosing wisely for your motivators. If a child does not care, let's say that you have a kid you're working with who really doesn't care for reading books, and you introduce a picture or a little choice on his device for book reading, well, no wonder he doesn't pick it. And then if he does pick it, no wonder he doesn't want to stick with it because it's not something he wants to do. So at the beginning, be so diligent and so careful about picking your motivators to make sure that a child really, really, really likes it. And I'll just tell you, I've done some non-traditional things with that. I've put pictures of Coke uh, that's Coca-Cola on there. If a kid, if that's a treat and mom and dad, you know, certainly are fine with that and they say, well, that's something he really wants, he'll really work for that, boy, we're going to use that. I use junk food all the time. And, again, some therapists kind of balk at that and say, you know, we don't want to contribute to obesity or I can't feed a child anything that's not nutritious. Or sometimes therapists will say I don't want to feed a child at all. Gosh, guys, with toddlers you're really missing then a big opportunity for communicating because I've never worked with a mom who doesn't say something like, I just wish you would tell me when he's hungry or I just wish you would be able to talk to me when she's crying in the kitchen and trying to show me what she wants and I just do not know what she wants. That's a really functional real-life goal. And so to not give a child a way to do that, I mean, you've got to practice those things in therapy before they're usable in real life. So if you have some qualms about that professionally, I hope that's another thing I can change your mind about today on this show, to really, really reconsider how important food is to everybody <laughs> and think about how you can incorporate that in your therapy sessions because there is no more functional way to work on communicating than being able to ask for food or a drink when you're hungry or thirsty. All right, so that's what we're going to talk about. I think, let me look at my notes really quickly. I think that's all I really wanted to mention about signs, pictures, and SGDs, speech-generating devices. And again, boy, we could do 10 shows about that and never say enough. 
So don't get uh, think that, that this is all the information you would ever need to implement that. Those are just some things that I wanted you to think about. And especially as a parent, those are the big mistakes, not having good enough motivators, not practicing enough, and not using two adults. And so, and not for PECs and for your other devices, you have to follow a really sequential system. Sometimes we're too willy-nilly in how we try to implement a picture system or a, a new device. And so you don't want you want to be really, really intentional and really purposeful. And so follow that PEX protocol because that is so worth the investment of your time and money to teach yourself how to do that so that your your time will be more and more and more effective. And even as a parent, you don't want to waste any more time with your kid. You want to get language and speech moving along. And so using these AAC options are just, a, again, a fantastic gap measure to, to really get in there before a kid's developmentally ready to talk. Or, again, you might be, have a child who has a diagnosis that the prognosis for talking really isn't that great right now. Don't waste this time. Go ahead and get in there with another system. All right, so that's what we were going to talk about on that. Now I want us to move forward. We last time on show number 350 talked a lot about that imitation hierarchy or how we teach a child to begin to imitate or copy words. And remember, we didn't start with words. We went way back and first taught him how to imitate actions with objects, and then we taught him how to use gestures, okay? And so now we walked through that whole thing. Let me say, sometimes children who aren't doing either one of those very preliminary things with imitating you during play and then imitating your early gestures, they have a real problem with attention and with participation and with task completion. Lots of times that's due to their sensory needs, and so they're just not regulated. They're just busy, busy, busy little bodies, and they need to move and run and jump and just get as much input to their bodies as possible. So when that is your problem, when that's the barrier to learning how to imitate and learning how to communicate, you've got to meet that need. And so we can do it, certainly as speech-language pathologists, and lots of us feel like we're uh, we're double hats because we have so gotten gotten ourselves trained in using sensory strategies. And if you're not a speech pathologist who's well-versed in that, just get yourself some additional training. And the best thing you can do is buddy up with an OT to teach you what kinds of things work for kids who need to calm down or what kinds of things work for kids who need to rev up, who are on the other end of that regulatory spectrum and they are flat and they don't really participate because they're just not zoned in enough. Their little systems are running way, their idle is low, is what I try to say, to, especially to dads who understand that analogy with a car motor. And so we have to get some kids revved up, but the majority of kids who aren't attending and who aren't participating and who aren't completing a task, they're on the other end of that. They're too busy. Their little systems need more, 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 more so that they can get enough input to finally settle down. And an OT can teach you how to do that. Now, if you're a parent, uh, my biggest recommendation is to get an occupational therapy evaluation, even if that means if you think, man, I'm so limited in our resources, our insurance doesn't cover that much, or our state early intervention program, if I, if I add OT, I won't be able to get as much speech. Think about it kind of as a strategy for helping your child learn how to talk. It's just one more tool. So you want to add OT to help 
you know how you can meet your child's needs in a way that that you've not been able to do before. You're going to get their little bodies really ready to talk, and OT can certainly do that. So that's certainly a thing we can do. Another strategy that I use with children who who have really limited attention spans and who don't stick with an activity is something. It's a technique called structured teaching, and you can look this method up. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, other than these are cognitive activities. They have a motor component and a cognitive component, and again, it's really not verbally dependent, where children are completing a predetermined task like taking all the rings off a ring stacker and putting them in a box, like an all-done box, or putting all of the pegs, ten pegs, into the holes, and then that's their task, that's completed. And it's a short, finite period of time and a really distinctive task so that kids understand what to do and then they learn to stick with an activity they learn to do it without a lot of adult assistance and direction they learn to complete the task and then clean it up before they can move on to something else and i have just seen that system work wonders now it's not appropriate for every kid although lots of children love it but lots of kids don't need it because their play skills are already fine they're staying with you. This is just for kids who are really, really struggling to play appropriately and, again, to complete a whole play activity. And so remember what we said at the beginning of the show. Anytime a child is struggling, we know, hey, this is too hard. I've got to try something different here. I can't just keep doing the same old thing and think it's going to somehow miraculously work out. Now, sometimes kids will catch up developmentally, and they kind of – catch up to you because you've been such a slow poke that (laughs) maturity has done its job and they finally can do what you want them to do. But most of the time it's the adult who has to say, I better adjust what I'm doing here. This is just not working. And so structured teaching is another avenue for your kids who don't routinely play with you, who don't complete play routines, and who there seems to be something missing there with their ability to – Again, stay with an activity and see it through to completion. And your children with with diminished interest in toys and with really significantly delayed play skills will benefit tremendously from introducing these kinds of activities. Now, I talk about structured teaching on my Is It Autism course part two because it's one of the ten strategies that I implement immediately with children who have autism or red flags for autism. And then I've done a couple of Therapy Tip of the Weeks about it. Gosh, they're old now, like the beginning of Therapy Tip of the Week, like 2012. I probably need to revisit that in some additional Therapy Tips of the Week. But I've also written about that and Teach Me to Talk in uh, some articles. I think they're called Homemade Cognitive Activities or Homemade Therapy Activities. Just go to Teach Me to Talk and put Homemade in the search bar, and you'll find those articles. You'll find those little posts about that. There's also some information about that in Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. Excuse me. So we were talking about before pictures and speech-generating devices and how to get that going and how there's information in that manual. There's also some information about structured teaching, so take a look at that. And you can also just do a Google search for teach. It's T-E, oh, boy, I'm probably going to mess this up. 
Um, but just just uh, Google structured teaching and you'll get that. Either the E, I can't believe I can't remember this, but either the E is repeated or the A is repeated. And I never remember which one without looking. And I'm not going to look that up now because I'll get too distracted here. But look that up. I believe it's T-E-E-A-C-H. And if that doesn't work, it's T-E-A-A-C-H. And again, I apologize for my little memory lapse there. Uh, but look that up because you're going to get fantastic information. If you do Pinterest, Gosh, there are so many good ideas on Pinterest for structured teaching. So, again, check those things out and teach yourself how to do some of those things, and it will fill in a big gap for you if you're a therapist and you really, really struggle with teaching a child how to complete activities and how to stick with you and how how to pay attention. And, and just for our little guys that we feel like, gosh, all I'm doing is chasing him around, This is, there's got to be a better way. That is the better way. <laughs> so get yourself some information on that. All right, let's move on and talk about what comes next with trying to help our little friends uh, who are talking and who have moved beyond the expressive strategies that we used. Hey, listen, guys, I just did find the teach information. Man, I'm, I really messed it up. It's T-E-A-C-C-H. So it's not the E or the A that's duplicated. It's the C. So it's T-E-A-C-C-H. And it's, um, it stands for the Treatment Education of Autistic and Related Communication Handicapped Children. But the C is doubled in there. And so uh, that's the way to to search that, and again, I so apologize for not remembering that off the top of my head there. Okay, so let's move on to what I said we were going to talk about next. These are kids who are imitating single words, but they're just having such a hard time moving on to the next part, which would be spontaneous communication. Now, remember that we do have to model, 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 and by for, for parents, that just means you've got to say what you want the kid to say. So you've got to really repeat the keyword over and over. You can't always just hold up an object that's new or that you think, he should know this word by now, and say, you know, what do you want? You've got to say it before you get it. You know, he may not be able to come up with that word, or he may not, if we haven't spent a lot of time teaching it, or if you've never heard a child imitate the word, you cannot assume that he understands it. So you've really, really got to model and hear a word often and frequently in imitation long before you expect your child to be able to pop out that word on his own. So modeling always comes first. So we always want to model the word that we want a child to say. And when he is a competent imitator, then we move on to choices. And so everybody understands what that strategy is. It's you're giving a child a choice of what he wants and you're still providing that verbal model so that he he's just above that direct imitative level of function there. You want it to be just one little baby step above that so you start to give him a choice. Now, the best thing you can do with choices is you at the beginning you put what you think the child is going to say last because that's most likely what he's going to imitate, especially at the beginning. So you, let's say you know that he loves chocolate milk, but you've got to give him a choice. You're going to offer him you want water or chocolate milk. And for some kids that would be a mouthful to say. So milk, and so you want, do you want water or milk? And so, again, you're giving him that option there so that he still can hear the word he's supposed to say. And initially you'll put 
what you want him to choose or what you think he's going to choose or when you first start using choices, you put that choice as the second word. Eventually, though, you want him to be able to hold on to the word that he wants to use to request even when he hears other words that you've said. And so eventually you move that what you think he wants or what you he's, you want him to say, want him to choose as your first option. And again, this is like what we talked about in PECS. The easiest way to do that is to offer a non-preferred choice. So if you really wanted him to learn how to say milk or chocolate milk, you would say, do you want chocolate milk or water? And then what happens if the child pops out water because he's just echoed you or he's just blindly imitating? Blindly is not a good word for that. He's non-purposefully imitating. What would you there? You'll know. You'll know, gosh, this is more like echolalia because he said water. He just said the last thing he heard. He's not really paying attention and linking meaning and assigning meaning. So when that happens, you have to give him the water, even though you know that he wants the chocolate milk, because you've got to teach him, again, that his words have power. And so you give him the water and you watch him get a little bit mad. You don't let him get too mad and go over the edge. You don't lecture and say, well, that's what you said. You get what you said. You don't go into all that that some of us are kind of prone to do. You just simply give him the water. And when he doesn't want it, you try again. You say, oh, if that's not what you wanted, let's do it again. You want chocolate milk or water? And you keep it light. You keep it fun. You keep it moving along. Don't let him you know, throw himself on the floor and roll around for 10 minutes, lapsing into, you know, a tantrum. Don't do that. Quickly move on to that other choice and, and or, or back to that choice and let him try again. And really, 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 I move to choices. When I hear a kid say 10 to 12 different words in a session, either by imitating what I've said or just something that they've managed to pop out spontaneously, that's when I move on to choices because I think, man, their imitating is great. This has become a really functional strategy for them. They know how to repeat, so let's just bump it up a little bit. Let's make it a little bit harder, and you move to choices. Now, choices are the best way to turn children into automatic full-time imitators, and that's what a lot of our kids need. They understand how to imitate and how to repeat, but again, we as the adults aren't using that technique as effectively as we could. So when we are great about giving choices, then children really, really increase the number of words that they'll say in uh, one session or one setting or sitting, however you want to think about that as a parent. And so you don't want to just give one choice. You want to give lots and lots and lots of choices. And in my DVD, uh, Teach Me to Talk, there's a cute little girl, Rory, and again, that was in 2008. But I, she was a little girl that just loved um, therapy, and she she was great at playing, but she was a, kind of a silent player. So the only way that I could really, really get her to consistently talk with me is just give choices. And that's where I honed my ability <laughs> to make everything a choice. So when we were playing together, let's say we were playing baby dolls, and that was one of the things that she loved to play. And I've had hundreds of kids just like this since then, but I just remember this little girl. So she's the one that we're going to use as the example. So let's say we were playing with baby dolls. If I knew she wanted to play dolls, I would say, do you want to play babies or potato heads, knowing that she would pick the babies. And that, again, is a way to really 
train a child, teach a child not just to echo the last word they've heard, but to really, really make a purposeful choice. And so she would pick babies. And then you would say, oh, do you want the big baby or the little baby? And you let her pick then. And then, oh, what's the baby going to do first? Will baby eat or will baby play? Oh, baby will eat. Oh, what will baby eat? Will baby eat a banana or an apple? Oh, oh, baby looks thirsty. What will she drink, juice or milk? And you just give choices like that the whole session. Now, some of you are listening and thinking, well, you're not leaving room for very much spontaneous play. No, I'm not. (laughs) Because with a kid like that, if talking is our primary goal and if we are trying to get do everything we can to get that child talking, I want to just be on it so that while the opportunity arises, I am providing as many opportunities for her to use her words as possible. The more relaxed, more laid-back approach is fantastic, and for a lot of kids, especially kids who are overstimulated, you will have to use that a lot. And, again, it is more natural, and you get there with a kid. But when they are in this phase, really they've started to imitate pretty consistently, but you know they're not using their words spontaneously or they try to sort of shut down on you. Go for it with choices because that's how you turn them into full-time talkers. So great, great strategy there. Now, what do you do then? How do you get a kid then to the point where they're from using choices where it's still kind of delayed imitation? There's still a big imitative component there because they're hearing the word. How do you move them along? You can either start to do choices non-verbally where you're holding up two things and saying something like, what do you want? And then they have to come up with the word, themselves and then you can always back it off a little bit and still model the word you know if she couldn't pick that she wanted to uh, let's say put the diaper on the baby or put the shoes on the baby after if you're sitting there holding the diaper and the shoes and she doesn't say it after a time or two of you saying oh we've got to tell me which one which one you can say at that point shoes or diaper and then they can pick so you can always kind of go back to that uh, imitative option there but really 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 moving a kid along with withholding and sabotage is how you help children become uh, move from imitating to using words more spontaneously and the withholding piece just means that you're going to give them three to five chances to say it before they get it and again you can always go back to the imitative piece where you give them that choice and sabotage really is where you are making it, you're, you're really setting the stage for a child to use words. So you're setting up situations where they have to talk. But again, you can't use withholding and sabotage for a kid that you've never, ever heard say the word. So let's say that you have a cool new spinning white toy that he is just crazy about and he wants it and, oh, my goodness, he's just clamoring to get that toy from you. But you're standing there and he he. He doesn't know what to say because it's a brand new toy. You haven't given him a choice or you haven't given him a model of the word. So you still have to come up with something to call that toy. And that's where a lot of therapists do get confused. And that's where a lot of times I think kids stay stuck with signs and words like more and like please because we don't give them any options. So you always have to introduce the the activity or introduce what it is that they want with the word, especially if you've never heard them say it before. So with a new toy, you have to spend a lot of time saying what that toy is or a new food or even if it's a familiar food. If you, if they love cookies but they've never said the word cookie in their life, don't think that you can use sabotage to hear that word for the first time. You've got to do it with modeling and it's got to be imitative first. So don't use your 
expressive strategies out of order either. First we model, then we bump to choices once they're imitating, and then we're going to withhold to make those choices more spontaneous, and then finally we sabotage to help a child learn how to initiate communication. And again, we reviewed that sequence super, super fast. You can get more information about that at, in Teach Me to Talk to the Therapy Manual, or if you're a therapist who needs continuing education credit, I have a great section of this in uh, my course, Early Speech-Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, or in my course, Building Verbal Imitation, Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. So check those out uh, if you need more information about that. All right, let's move on to our last little mini topic. We have about five minutes left in this show. Let's move on to, let's say we've gotten a kid, he's imitating single words, and we've gotten a lot of those words to be spontaneous now. And now we think, man, he's ready for phrases. I'm ready to bump him up to phrases. Let's talk about the prerequisites for moving a kid from single words to phrases. First of all, I don't start phrases until a child has enough of a word bank or until his expressive vocabulary really is at the 35 to 50 word point. Now, I didn't just make that number up. It's not just something that we've pulled out of the air there. That is evidence-based because... That's the point when typically developing children begin to combine words and say phrases, use phrases on their own spontaneously. And it really does require that a child have enough different options in his existing expressive vocabulary before he can make phrases. So a lot of people will tell you, a lot of speech pathologists, even well-known speech pathologists will say, we've got to practice phrases as quickly as possible, especially for kids with motor planning issues. And I get that because they're treating the heart of the problem for a kid with apraxia, which is sequencing. So I get why they want to move a kid to phrases really quickly. And for that subset of population, I could almost make an exception for that. But really, all kids need a solid vocabulary base before we're thinking about moving them along to phrases because we don't want them just to say a lot of pre-canned phrases that they've learned as a whole word or a holistic phrase, we want them to be able to mix and match their words or interchange their words because that's what we do as language users. We learn a word and then we insert it into our everyday uh, lexicon or our everyday language that we use. And so when we try to start phrases too early, a kid has nowhere to go. We've got to still really, really, really and they get, that's when they get stuck on just a couple of little phrases. And so we've got to continue to build that single word vocabulary and make those words really, really meaningful and have a child really use those words frequently and on his own and, and own those words. So we've got to really, really get them there so that they can begin to combine words and come up with their own novel phrases. And that's how you know when all this language has really stuck, <laughs> when it, in a good way. When a child begins to take two words from his existing vocabulary and combine them into something that you would never, ever say, like uh, mine car, He's showing possession with that. He's showing what he's, the object that he's possessing. He just got a little bit mixed up with that pronoun usage there. But you understand a phrase like that, and you know, boy, that is spontaneously generated. He has done that completely on his own because he's never heard me say mine car, right? So be sure to think about the, the 
biggest prerequisite for a child, for helping a child learn how to use phrases, is having enough single words in this vocabulary. One of the problems is one, that all of his words are still really imitated, and so how do we handle that? We do just what we talked about the last 10 or 15 minutes where we move them from modeling to choices to withholding and sabotage. So we move a child through that process with lots of different words, and then pragmatically he learns, I have to ask for things, I have to initiate things, I have to use these words on my own. So that lack of spontaneous vocabulary, and the second thing that really limits a child's phrase use is lack of vocabulary diversity. By that, I just mean there's not enough variety in his words. Maybe he has all nouns or all names of things. Now, all new talkers have a predominantly number of nouns represented in their vocabulary. So they learn how to name them. So that's not an unusual problem, but when we get a kid ready to go to phrases, they need action words, verbs. They need location words, which are prepositions. They need some descriptors, which are adjectives and adverbs. You've got to give them some different word classes. So your first thing to do when you're working on phrases is make sure you're teaching enough single words so that they have ways to move on and enough things to say. Another thing that you want to do here is a technique called expansion. Where you take a word that a child says and you repeat it back to him and you add another word. So if he says truck and he's just made the truck stop as he's playing on the floor, you say stop truck or truck stop or something. You add, you take what he's just said and you add a meaningful word to it and hopefully one that he can imitate. And so again, a lot of kids will have to go through a big period of imitation with phrases as well. They won't be able to use the phrase on their own, but they can imitate it. So you have to think about letting them or providing models for them to imitate two word phrases for a long time. Another thing you can do here, and again, that's with expansion. Another thing you can do is you target simple phrase patterns and use anchor words like we talked about before with more or with please so that when they're phrases, they're not just pulling the words out of thin air. You've given them a pattern to repeat and copy. So let's say that you're playing, let's do the little boy with the trucks. So let's say we're playing with trucks, but you have in your in your own wisdom have decided, well, I'm going to have a couple trucks and a couple of cars and a train and a bike and a boat and a plane. And he's going to have to sit there and request. So he would say, more truck. And then if he wants to add a car to that, more car. And then if he wants to add a bike to that, more bike. And so you're giving him, again, that anchor and a way to practice because you're setting that situation up, and so that's a great, great way to do it, and that provides enough repetition so that he really, really, really learns how to use that phrase and so it becomes more functional. And he has to, has to imitate it a lot before he could ever get ready to say it on his own. So those are just the kind of the basics for helping a child move on to phrases. And again, if you need more information about that, please pick up Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, or uh, early speech language development, taking theory to the floor, be sure to use the coupon code PODCAST, too. And that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, so the word PODCAST, and you can save yourself 10 bucks off either of those products. So I hope today we've reviewed uh, kind of sandwiched last show with if a child's not ready developmentally to do the imitation hierarchy to learn how to talk, now you know what to do at the beginning going to use some alternative augmentative or augmentative alternative systems first with signs, pictures, or devices. And then when you move, then move him along, move him toward being able to use 
words and imitate words. And then we also talked about the other end of that, kids who are doing the things, who are imitating pretty well. How do we get them to move along to more spontaneous word use and then bump up to phrases? Just what we talked about today, we model to get those words imitated and then we start to give choices so it's a little different, a little harder way to imitate and then we move through withholding and sabotage and then we get to phrases and we use things like anchor words and we use things like expansion and we make sure that we are continuing to develop their single word vocabulary. So those were our important takeaways from today and I hope that you have benefited from that. I just love doing the podcast and I just feel so grateful for every one of you who's listened and again the longevity of this show blows me away every time I think about it. And, you know, I got to meet a therapist this week. I was in a training for uh, Kentucky's Early Intervention System, and I met a therapist who's moving in from another state, and that was so fun to me. And, for, and every time I meet somebody who says, man, I started out listening to your show. I used to listen to your show as I drive, or I listened while I exercised and walked around, or I listened while I ironed clothes or did dishes or whatever, or moms who listen in the middle of the night because you're up anyway. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I so appreciate the opportunity to do this show, and and that's just because of you and your willingness to help your child or a whole caseload of children. And, again, I just wanted to end the show uh, with a a big, sincere thank you. So I hope that that's... uh, well-received on your end. All right, that's all for today. Hey, don't forget about uh, my new therapy manual, Functional Phonology. It's fantastic, and that's actually what we're going to talk about next week or next show, uh, strategies to increase speech intelligibility. And they are ready to target.